about films and that uh, and the penultimate part of our alternate uh, 100 series uh, we are just 20 films away from completing our magnum opus um, and uh, yeah I never thought we'd get to like three parts let alone nine Ed uh, I, I, I always had faith in us but I didn't know what exactly the time scale would be yeah and we are really taking it to the wire it being mid-December now yeah, well, I, I think it's it's good because I think for a while we were like the George R. R. Martin of podcasts. Mm. We had this grand vision, but it was just taking a really long time. And now we've uh, Stephen Kinged it up. Yeah, absolutely. We're just racing through them. Um, and they're all as tenuous as the last. Um, I must apologise to listeners um, who may detect a uh, husky tone to my voice. I'm ill. Um, I'm, and I'm just going to mention it now. I'm not a very good person at being ill. Um so if you hear the phone ringing, it's me speed dialing Dignitas to take care of me <laughs> because I, uh, I'm, I'm not a very good ill person um, at all. Um, I'm just going to complain about it throughout the episode um, and Ed can just edit out the, uh, the mouth breathing and, uh, and uh, kind of nose draining. So I apologise in advance uh, for the interruption uh, to your normal service. Um, like I say, it's uh, part nine of the Alternate 100. Uh, we've got ten more films uh, to talk about. Um, before we do so, uh, let's jingle one off. The Alternate 100. Okay, uh, the penultimate 10 films. Uh, and the first one we're going to talk about is a, you know, a pretty unique film in itself. Uh, not really many films out there like this. Uh, we're talking about Walt with Bashir. We talked, uh, I think, kind of halfway through this about the documentary The Arbor, uh, and we talked about it being uh, the documentary redefined. Uh, Waltz with Bashir kind of uh, nearly kind of defies classification, really. Yeah, it's a, a, a mixture between a animated film, kind of a personal essay film, a documentary, uh, all about uh, this uh, man named Ari Folman, who is the director and also the interviewer uh, is he an Israeli man who when he was young uh, was in the army during the uh, the war with uh, Lebanon yeah in, yes. yeah early 80s yeah and uh, he uh, at the start of the film he talks about how he always has this dream and he uh, about kind of floating in the water as the city's on fire and about all the men that he's with and ha- he goes around and interviews the people he was in the army with to try and figure out if this is a thing that actually happened or what their experiences were like and over the course of the film and using this uh, kind of rotoscope style animation to recreate their experiences in the war he creates this uh, sort of dreamlike examination of what it was like to be in the uh, israeli army at that time 
Yeah, it's very much a film uh, about uh, memory and the unreliability of memory and, and perhaps uh, memories that he'd kind of deliberately tried to, to kind of block out. Like you say, it's, it's a kind of a personal essay film, but it's also his uh, personal exploration into uh, why he can't remember th- certain things or why he remembers things a certain way and the choices he makes to do it animated and in the style he does um, are, you know, really interesting given... Um, it could have just been a you know a straight talking head and nowhere would have not got anywhere near to getting kind of into uh, that internal kind of horror that he kind of uh, is struggling to remember. It definitely gives it a, a a visceral quality, even though it's very stylish animation and it it uh, doesn't really approach reality. Um, there's lots of uh, dream se- There's like a, a dream sequence where there's. It's him lying on a giant woman and things like that. So it goes into the realm of, of sort of surreal imagery, and but it also uh, it it creates a a sort of heightened reality that it sticks to and uses that to explore the the violence and also uh, the in, in a way the kind of the sense of belonging that he had there and what it was like for him as a young man. You know, the scenes of like guys that are going to nightclubs and things and dancing to public image limited and things like that and it kind of creates this uh it does this really good uh job of being struck in such a way that it starts out with the kind of the high spirits of these guys who are going off to war and they think they're going to do great things because they're they're young and they're in the army and then as it goes along the darkness and of the contrasting uh, accounts of the war start to come into the frame and it, it becomes a much more different the, the story gets a different tone yeah and it's it's um it is not kind of all documentary though like i say it's, it's animated um to interviews he's done but there's also kind of some staged bits where uh with actors playing kind of composite kind of versions of a lot of different characters that are in the that he meets that we kind of don't get time to talk to or that they can't talk to. Um, so it really does kind of play with that reality, non-reality, doesn't it? Yeah, there's there's lots of different layers of what is true, what is reality. And I think it's, it's interesting how that extends beyond the obvious uh, unreality of the animation to the way in which the film is uh, is constructed itself. But it never feels... It doesn't feel like it's uh, dishonest in that. No, because he's obviously pursuing uh, something that's very uh, slippery. This I, the question of what actually happened, and uh, so there's a, there's a lot of license there to kind of move facts around in pursuit of of a, a a truth. When someone makes a film as distinctive and as personal and as kind of damn right, uh, kind of like unique as Waltz with Bashir. Um, does that ever kind of put them on the back foot right away when that's their first film? How do they kind of follow something like that? Every film can't be a kind of nightmarish, uh, animated, documentary, pseudo-fiction exploration of uh, your own personal national service. It definitely feels like uh, something where you have to constantly reinvent yourself like every time out because obviously you've done something that's unique and personal uh you can't replicate that over and over so you're you're you have to kind of people are going to constantly be judging you against that and you have to go against type every time and i think kind of the problem with the congress which has got good reviews but not uh overwhelmingly 
positive ones is that because he has a, it has a similar visual style to what's with Bashir people are obviously comparing it to that even though it's obviously a film that isn't based in reality and is a, a, a much uh, different beast mm, yeah 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 um in an unusual move for us um that gives us a good segue um because uh here's a segue from talking about someone who's the constant need to reinvent themselves to Jim Jarmusch. There we go. Uh, Jim Jarmusch is uh, a man, a film director, um, as you know. Uh, we had his film Down by Law in the first episode, and we've got another one of his films popping up in this 10. Uh, we're going to talk about his uh, truly uh, unique Western, Dead Man. say unique ed uh you could call it a kind of like i don't know postmodernist kind of art western with kind of west like kind of existentialist overtones yeah i think that that gets close to it in the same way that um down by law is a prison break movie that doesn't have a prison break in it <laughs> um or, or that uh excuse the uh the traditional uh, ideas of of what that kind of genre should involve the in dead man it's more he has a, a western and he uses it to explore the idea of a western um in his own kind of offbeat and deadpan way yeah it's it's certainly deadpan um mm. it's got an absurd cast um i uh, seem to remember i bought the uh, this film on vhs Remember that, Ed, VHS, uh, a long time ago. And I remember reading the back of who was in it. And I was like, surely they can't fit all of these people in. But they all kind of pop up as these kind of like weird, peculiar characters that, that uh, Johnny Depp, who plays uh, an accountant uh, called William Blake. Uh, not that William Blake, although that is the central premise of the film, a, a kind of a series of, I want to say series of hilarious misunderstandings, but it's much darker than that. Um uh, kind of, he meets these kind of crazy people on the way, and they kind of range from uh, kind of William Hurt to Iggy Pop to Billy Bob Thornton and Lance Henriksen. Uh, who else is in it? Uh, Jared Harris. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, I remember him as in that. Um, he plays a, I believe he plays a cannibal or yes. a prospective cannibal. Yeah, um, um, and yeah, it's it's a very kind of like peculiar western. Um, in the sense that there's, it kind of feels like a Western, but it isn't. Um, and it's kind of shot in very stark black and white, um, uh, like kind of uh, cinematography. And the score is worth mentioning. It would be my absolute dream uh, live score if I would ever see a film uh, scored live. I think watching Dead Man scored live by Neil Young would be pretty amazing because uh, he, he does it solo, I think. He doesn't have a band with him, but it's... Um, uh, kind of like just him kind of improvising around and the kind of film starts on a on a train and it has this kind of like uh, 
you listen to the train arrive, uh, as a lot of uh, westerns start with the train arriving. Um, but like the, all the sound of the train, the pistons and the, and, and the wheels and everything is, is is kind of Neil Young and it's kind of heavily distorted guitar. It's it's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a kind of a tonal drone in the best possible way. It, it creates this atmosphere of uh, dread and unease that never really leaves uh, the film. And I think it does a really good job of approximating how William Blake must feel as a guy who's just an accountant who ends up in this absurd story where he's palling around with an Indian who believes he's a reincarnation of the poet Mm -hmm. and he's being menaced by all these people and he's being forced into a situation where he has to be a hero and he desperately doesn't want to be because he doesn't have it in him to shoot people and uh, his he he just doesn't really have a clue what's going on and what's happening to him and the music plays a big part in in recreating that sense of uh, uncertainty and unease yeah there's there's a great bit in it where like because everyone keeps mistaking him for william blake and he's not william blake and then i think he's been i think he might have been shot twice by this point but mm-hmm. then at the end uh you know instead of uh, someone says he like he says i'm william blake and he says what the poet and instead of saying no that's not me let's stop making these hilarious misunderstandings uh, he just says, are you familiar with my work? And then that's when he finally shoots something, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's correct. It's a great, like, it's a great, like, kind of, uh, the kind of weirdest non-conventional journey a hero, in the inverted commas, uh, can can go on. And a great performance by Johnny Depp back when that was uh, kind of expected. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, just this has just come back to me about Dead Man. Um, it is horrendously violent, isn't it? Mm. There's these kind of really kind of like jolting moments of horrible, horrible violence. Yeah, it's that weird thing with with Jarmish because people think of him as doing uh, often very laid back and loose comedies uh, that occasionally he'll do something like that or uh, Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai where the story requires violence and uh, it's uh, it's actually quite disturbing. Also this year he's did a film called... uh, only lovers left alive, which at one point feels features uh, someone's body being dissolved in acid, oh, yeah. and uh, it's uh, yeah, really gruesome. <laughs> he's, so he's got a he's got a weird streak in him. Does uh, does Jarmusch? Mm, yeah, mentioned in uh, Ghost Dog, uh, uh, the character of Nobody uh, actually turns up in uh, in Ghost Dog, uh, which is something I didn't understand what it was. I saw Ghost Dog first. And then mm. saw that again because he said he turns up and says uh, "stupid fucking white man," which is, you know, his signature phrase in Dead Man, uh, pretty much. Um, yeah, he, he that's his very brief cameo. Uh, just a bit of trivia there, not really important. You can cut this bit out if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Dead Man. Um, I kind of is that a good kind of uh, um, for people who aren't familiar with Jim Jarmusch to watch the two films that we've talked about. You know, Down by Law and. And Dead Man, it gives like a good idea of the range of his work. Yeah, um, I think you could also probably fit Mystery Train in there for him at his kind of for doing one of his kind of loose improvisational feeling vignette sort of films or or um, Coffee and Cigarettes, which is great yeah. for that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's very accessible. That one it's kind of fun. And uh, if you're finding it a little bit of it boring, don't worry about it. There's going to be a good bit coming up. Yeah, Alfred Molina and uh, Steve Coogan will be coming along to make you laugh. <laughs> that bit's brilliant when they're like, you know, do you want to take that coat off? Yeah, because it's too hot to wear outside. 
but it's too cool in the restaurant. It's brilliant. It's very, very funny that bit. I kind, um, I kind of, I was speaking with someone on, oh, I was writing someone on Twitter today about that and how it's weird how that short film seems to have been the basis for all of Steve Coogan's work in the last ten years, or certainly all of his work with um, uh, Michael Winterbottom. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like uh, Winterbottom kind of guest directed that bit. <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I don't think he did. Uh, anyway, yeah, so Dead Man. Um, yeah, check it out. Um, the next film we're going to talk about um, is a film from 1963. Um, a, I guess you're going to. Oh, it's 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 a horror film, um, but perhaps not in the way you expect. We're talking about uh, the haunting. I'll take a lot from this filthy house for his sake, but I will not go along with hurting a child. No, I will not. Get my mouth to open right now, and I will yell, I will yell, I will yell. Stop it! What? What? No, what? is a film by uh, our old friend uh, Robert Wise a, a kind of a chap we mentioned quite a lot and he was kind of like the ultimate craftsman of, uh, of films he was kind of a, a you know a hired hand he did a lot of films like uh, I think he was the editor on uh, Citizen Kane but he went on to direct things like Sound of Music and uh, West Side Story and Star Trek the Motion Picture and he was just seen as a you know a craftsman someone who could you know, he'll turn you in a good film. But he actually directed quite a lot of films that were masterpieces in uh, several genres. Uh, we talked about the setup earlier in this series, and we're talking about The Haunting now, which is the ultimate haunted house film, isn't it? Yeah, it's it certainly is one of the very, very best, based on the novel um, uh, by uh, Shirley Jackson. And, uh, yeah, it's one of the most atmospheric and but also it, it does the kind of people go to stay in a haunted house uh story which is something that has been done a lot and has been done badly quite a lot including in the 1999 remake of the haunting uh but it kind of is an exemplar of that particular kind of story yeah and it's it's a film that that is when i say it's a horror film and not the way you'd expect um it is there are no supernatural elements in it, but you would be forgiven for thinking that uh, throughout the entire film because it's so thick with atmosphere and and uh, kind of traditional scares that um, you know it's you don't realise until you get to the end that it's you know, really a horror film. It's just a really immaculately constructed thriller, psychological thriller. Yeah, I, th- it, I think a lot of it is. It's a really good example of using form to create atmosphere because there's lots of like wide angle lenses lots of uh obviously it's black and white which adds to that sense of dread quite a lot because there's lots of deep shadows and um just a fantastic uh cast uh who really don't overplay the kind of horror movie aspects of it they're not really hamming it up um they are to an extent because it's the sixties and a horror film and it's not really a time for subtlety, but they, they kind of play it down just enough to really make you believe that these people are terrified by the, what's happening around them. 
Yeah, and you kind of mentioned the camera work. It's for someone like Robert Wise, who uh, wasn't seen as maybe a bravado kind of stylist. Um, there's a lot of um, really kind of uh, 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 kind of I say uh, the camera work in it is it doesn't feel like a kind of from a, a studio picture in the early sixties. Mm, yeah, it's very uh, expressive. Yeah. yeah, and it's very it's very European. Yeah, there's definitely that, and I think there's also uh, Europeanness in its uh, ambiguity because, like you say, like there is no overt supernatural elements to the film, but that uncertainty about whether or not there is it is haunted, or if it's just the fact that these people are are just afraid and kind of psychologically broken, if that's what's creating their fear. Um, that kind of adds to the, the the sense of complexity of the whole thing. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's 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 a very very chilling film. Even if you've kind of seen it and you know where it's going, it's it's even though it's you know fifty years old, uh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. fifty one. Fifty years old, fifty one years old. It's um, still incredibly effective. Yeah, it doesn't lose any of its power. I think a large part of that is because there's no kind of special effects to age the film. You know, there's no kind of uh, rubbish ghost effects or anything. It's just a uh, a great work of uh, of craft of kind of timeless movie making magic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you ever feel compelled to check out the 1999 remake, um, which takes all of the subtlety and kind of nuance of the '63 film and just throws a load of CGI on it. Um, it, don't don't watch it. It's it's one of the worst remakes. I'd say it's probably up there with the remake of The Vanishing of being worst remake of film on this list. Yeah, of the two film, the two terrible films that Liam Neeson was in in nineteen ninety nine, which would you say is worse, The Haunting remake or Phantom Menace? <sighs> that's like asking me to choose between AIDS and cancer. That's <laughs> that's a tough choice. I'd say Phantom Menace. I think Phantom Menace is literally one of the worst films in the nineties. I think it gets way too much of an easy ride. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll sa- we'll save that for our Star Wars episode next year, which uh, you know we're going to have to do inevitably. Um, but no, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of awful. I wouldn't recommend it. I think it's a film in Owen Wilson gets decapitated um, by a fireplace, <laughs> uh, which is quite something. Um, and oh yeah, uh, Catherine Zeta Jones gets attacked by a CGI uh, statue of a griffin. Um, so anyway, the haunting uh, still very effective, still very chilling watch it um but yeah not alone hmm um next film we're going to talk about um a film uh that uh is hugely influential um although it doesn't seem to get uh, picked up as much as uh, other films uh, we're talking about michael mann's thief i'll whack out your whole family people will be eating them for lunch tomorrow in their wimpy burgers and not know it you'll get paid what i say you do what I say. I run you. There is no discussion. I want you work until you are burned out, you are busted, or you're dead. You'll get it. You got responsibilities. Tighten up and do it. So, yes, Steve, uh, perhaps not. It's very rarely kind of uh, mentioned ahead of some of his other films like Heat and uh, Manhunter. Um, but 
you know, I'd probably make a strong case for Thief being Michael Mann's best film by quite a quite a margin. It's uh, it's probably his leanest. There's uh, yeah. for for a man who doesn't really make bloated films, like even something like Heat, which is a kind of a crime epic and it's um, fairly long. I think that film's like well over two hours. Uh, mm. That's a film that constantly moves. This one because it's a fairly simplistic story of uh, criminals and uh, back betrayal. Uh, there's no, there's really no room for kind of flab. It's just straight ahead, uh, no nonsense. Uh, visually amazing, uh, and uh, amazing, even more amazing because it was uh, it was Michael Mann's debut. Wow, that was his debut. Oh, that's amazing. I thought the keep was his debut, <laughs> um, but no, yeah, it's um, uh, yeah, it's if you watch Heat first and then watch Thief second. Um, like you say, it's kind of like almost the kind of uh, the cordial version of it. It's that kind of concentrated uh, ideas of like kind of concepts and everything from the same film. It's got that kind of uh, professional criminal um, uh, kind of hardened, like completely kind of focused on the job. Um, but in Thief, um, we get this kind of like deep character backstory, whereas in uh, a lot of his other films, the uh, protagonists are uh, kind of presented as being quite kind of cold and dispassionate and, and a little bit two-dimensional. I think that's probably a a, uh, a complaint I would level at something like Heat, um, where, you know, I think kind of puts too much onus on Robert De Niro not having any furniture to probably speak volumes about <laughs> his character, whereas that's not really how it works. Whereas in Thief, you know, James Kahn's character, yes, he's a professional thief, and, you know, a kind of career criminal who's, you know, a badass. Uh, he's also going through an, an, like an adoption drama at the same time. Mm, yeah, I think you can really see him formulating a lot of the things you would see in his later works, particularly the idea of honour among, among thieves and the idea of uh, men working from a code, uh, you know, sort of criminals who do bad things but who have a certain sense of honour about how they go about it. And what happens mm. when uh, they come up against uh, unscrupulous um, criminals? Um, yeah, and the, in in this case, the unscrupulous criminal um, being uh, cuddly old Robert Prosky, mm. who turns in an absolutely terrifying performance. Yeah, unbelievably menacing, particularly um, the scene. I think it's about two thirds of the way through after they beat the shit out of James Carr, and he just kind of st- stands over him and sort of monologues at him, and he doesn't do it in a he kind of keeps his voice under control, but there's that sense of uh, that he could destroy him and and really just uh, have him killed at any moment. There's a there's a kind of confidence to his uh, to his evil. Um, a lot of kind of you know one of the kind of most talked about films in the last couple of years, um, uh, for you know perhaps right and wrong reasons, has been uh, Drive mm. and um, Thief um, and another film that kind of we talked about putting on this list, uh, The Driver. Um, it seemed to be, if you put those films together exactly, it would exactly make the film drive. Yes, uh, I think that Man uh, has, his, probably his his greatest visual gift to the world is he's kind of defined how people shoot Los Angeles. Certainly mm-hmm. how they shoot it at night. Um, he's kind of captured the idea of it as a kind of a dark but beautiful place um i think you can see that you can definitely see that in drive you can see that in something like nightcrawler from this year um Mm -hmm. they both have this sense of uh los angeles as a place that is 
incredibly dangerous but if you are kind of if you're if you're part of that world it also has a certain kind of dark beauty to it and like if you're mm, a twinkly allure yes and if you're someone like james khan who lives in that world and understands it uh it's kind of like a a, a kind of a playground for him mm. going back to what i was saying about um thief being more of a character film mm-hmm. um do you think that michael mann kind of moved away from kind of getting under the skin of his his kind of uh characters because he wasn't interested anymore or do you think that it slowed down uh you know what he was more interested in that kind of that kind of cool violence that kind of detached um slightly kind of uh dispassionate um kind of uh morality play i i think he's someone who just as a uh, has a natural tendency towards minimalism. Um, mm-hmm. I think you really see that in certainly in his crime dramas. In stuff like, uh, like maybe The Insider, there's a, li- a bit more depth to it because he's working from a story of of a real person or Ali. There's, but I think he has uh, he's more interested in the visual side of it and, and uh, providing information through the through the mise en scene and the way the camera moves. And I think that that because that's where his interest lies that's why he's perhaps not as interested in kind of fleshing out the characters in the scripts uh, i think he kind of is in that sense he's kind of uh follows in something like the walter hill mode mm. yeah i mean i'm not saying that he he's kind of he can't do characters mm. it's just a different approach to them isn't it yeah it's very much a case of you know action is character so he doesn't spend too much time writing people's backstory or have them kind of talk when yeah. they could, unless they need to talk about the job or their code, it's more about seeing how they react to their situation to explain who they are. Yeah, or just not have any furniture and have that just say it. Yeah, and talk um, about great asses. Exactly, exactly. I, I, yeah, I watched Heat a couple of like months ago, um, and I think if you viewed Al Pacino's scenes in isolation. I think he's in a different film. <laughs> I think he's 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 in a comedy, and I don't think he realizes it because uh, he, uh, he. I mean, he's even got a line of dialogue in there when he kind of he says, "Kind of, I'm intense, aren't I?" And uh, I get the impression that like they were they were kind of playing around on set, and and Michael Mann probably said, "Just give me one that's really intense," and he did, and they were like, "Yep, yeah, let's print that one. <laughs> that's fine." Um, it didn't. There didn't seem to be he kind of goes from being very quiet when he's talking to Robert De Niro in other scenes or being just completely ludicrous and it doesn't seem to be a middle ground. Yeah, it, it definitely feels maybe like the tipping point of his career where he, he's yeah. really starting to become uh, untethered from grounded character work to uh, yeah. fiery uh, theatrics. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, Thief. Uh, it's. I think it's widely available. I think Criterion did one, didn't they, a few years ago? Or they're doing one coming up? Uh, I, I, they, they, they did one. I think it either came out late last year or early this year. Yeah, but yes, uh, if you're going to watch it, watch it on that because uh, it's a beautiful looking film and uh, needs to be seen um, in good quality. Uh, again, here comes a segue. We're going to talk about a film that you can't really view in high quality because it's a very low quality film. Uh, and when I say low quality, as in it literally looks quite bad and you can only really watch it on youtube or on a very low quality dvd nowadays we're talking about a real oddity we're talking about carnival of souls (laughs) 
profane, sacrilege. What are you playing in this church? Have you no respect? Do you feel no reverence? And I feel sorry for you and your lack of soul. This organ, the music of this church, these things have meaning and significance to us. I assume they did to you. But without this awareness, I'm afraid you cannot be our organist. In conscience, I must ask you to resign. When I say real oddity, uh, I don't wish to say that anything about the film is kind of particularly unusual, uh, although it is quite strange in parts. Uh, it's a film that just kind of exists in a really weird kind of like bubble. It's made by a man called Herc Hervey, who only made one film, and he made this film the rest of his career. He just made corporate films and instructional videos for like, you know, you know, Ford and stuff and like, you know, big industrial companies. But on the side, when he realised how cheap like cameras were to rent and stuff, he just thought, Do you know what, I'm just gonna make a a kind of a film. I don't really have much of a budget, don't really have much of an idea. But what can I do with this amount of money? And what he did is he made one of the most chilling low budget films ever made. It's a very, very, very uh, kind of atmospheric uh, deeply un unsettling B movies, um, and yeah, it's it's very influential and kind of it still can be felt now, uh, echoes of it. Um, but yeah, just such a peculiar little film to be put together, basically on the side of a man who was just making corporate films. Yeah, it, it almost kind of verges on like outsider art in that respect. You know, there's a, qu a quality of it. I, I think of it if you think of it in terms of music as being like the work of Daniel Johnston. Like, oh, yeah. like a guy who um, just has this very weird view on the world and who makes music that uh, if you break down the constituent parts, it just sat, it's, it, it could be normal music, but there's something kind of deeply weird and uncomfortable about it. And I think the, the part of that is that you have someone who has an idea of what a, a particular art form is, but maybe they mentally don't have the tools to express it the way that normal people would or the way that people who are kind of tr professionally trained to make that kind of art would and so you end up with something that's both familiar and deeply strange at the same time yeah it's a, a film in which um a young lady who is in a in a kind of a, a drag race or gets pulled into a kind of a drag race whilst uh, driving somewhere uh her car goes off off a bridge and uh is submerged in a river and she kind of uh, is is found, um, you know, a few hours later, but can't remember anything about the crash, and she kind of lives in the town where the crash happens, and she gets a job as like this church organist, and the entire score is this really weird, creepy church organ score, and she slowly starts to have kind of weird hallucinations, and we're not really sure what's real and what isn't, and um, it really it kind of it feels a lot like uh, the Polanski film Repulsion. Oh yeah, um, but made for like fifty p. And I think it predates it by about 10 years, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, Repulsion's like 65, I think, like mid-60s. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it kind of just, you're really not sure what you're seeing. And some of the imagery that it uses, um, considering this is a, a film made for literally fuck all, um, with um, only a couple of professional actors, everyone else is kind of locals, um, shot in a kind of like, you know, no-name town. Um, with a very, very limited budget, but it makes absolute most of it. It's got some really creepy location work. It's, there's uh, some very simple makeup uh, effects used for kind of these kind of horrible ghouls that are in the film. 
Um, there's a great scene with the, the the lead character. She's driving um, at night, and she looks in. She can see her own reflection in the window, and then when she looks back, it's the face of someone else. But a lot of it's not really explained. It's a very kind of abstract film in a lot of ways, and at the end, it kind of pulls it all together. Yeah, I think a large reason why some of that imagery is so powerful is that there's kind of no differentiation between the weird stuff and the the quote-unquote normal stuff. Like her... Mm interactions with people when she talks to people are always really off and they're always really part of it i think is just the fact that they're some of the actors just aren't very good and they're a little stilted but that just adds to that sense of unreality that sense that people aren't what they seem or that something deeply unusual and strange is going on but because the visual quality you know they can't really afford different uh sets to you know to highlight the dream sequences or to to highlight make the hallucinations feel like they're different from reality um it all just kind of looks the same and that creates this sense of uh you know reality and hallucinations and dream and you know whatever all melding together and it being really hard to tell apart what is and isn't happening to her mm yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said, I kind of mentioned at the, the kind of start of introducing this film um, that it's it's kind of hard to get a decent quality version of it. It's been released on DVD a few times, but it's always uh, kind of like a really bad transfer or whatever. And I mean, it wasn't shot on the greatest, you know. Mm. But it kind of is a film that's kind of demands to be preserved because it's 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 so unusual and so great that like it's it's something that you know we need to uh, kind of see in a in a decent way, really. Yeah, I think it's. It also reminds me a little bit of um, the noir film Detour, um, mm. oh, yeah. which is similarly a film that was made for almost nothing. That film famously has about three sets and cost almost nothing to produce, but it's amazing because they use the cheapness to create atmosphere and to kind of boil down the the notion of noir to its kind of key attributes. And this one, because it's so minimalistic and there isn't really time for extraneous stuff i think doesn't uh carnival souls only run for like 70 minutes or something it's it's pretty short yeah because it's so uh so lean and there's so uh there's just nothing kind of weighing it down uh it does kind of feel like something that's been thrown together on the weekends but that you know it, it all kind of plays into its charm and that sense that you're seeing something that could not really get made if you know, there was real money behind it. Yeah, it's it's a film, I think a lot of the reasons that kind of answering my own question as to why it doesn't exist in a, in a, in a better format is that it's a film that's lapsed into the public mm. domain, I think, um, which is why, you know, it's widely available on YouTube. But, you know, it's a shame. It's a shame that kind of, I'm not I'm not demanding like a nine-disc Blu-ray collector's <laughs> edition, but, you know, you know, just a little bit of respect for something. And I guess that's what the alternate 100 is about, isn't it? The next film there that we're going to talk about um, is a film from uh, the early 2000s called Chuck and Buck. This is my mom. She's pretty. She would have hated this. All these people in her house. It's kind of strange to see you after all these years. I mean, under these circumstances. Guess who this is? It's me and Chuck. Chuck? I go by Charlie now, pretty much. Chuck and Buck. 
That's so adorable. Look at you guys. You're such little cuties. I have a whole box of pictures. Uh, we talked about it briefly before when we talked about um, uh, film versus digital, when we kind of talked about and, and this was an early film that was kind of uh, shot entirely on mini DV, I think it was. Um, you know, one of the few films that was released, um, you know, theatrically that had been shot entirely on that format. And um, it's a really kind of interesting kind of time capsule because obviously digital filmmaking has come on so much. And now, in a lot of cases, it's, you know, near indistinguishable to the untrained eye between film or digital. Um, obviously dilettantes like ourselves can tell the difference um, but uh, it it really doesn't look like film it looks like video now um, but it's you can totally see why they used it They can. You, it really is a film which um, kind of uh, benefits from the intimacy and the immediacy uh, that handheld kind of uh, prosumer gear uh, gives you Yeah, absolutely and especially considering the uh... The story itself is a film directed by uh, Miguel Arteta. Is that how you say? Yeah, yeah. Not to be confused with Mikel Arteta, who plays for Arsenal. Yeah. Um, Just to clear that up now. But it's it, the screenplay is written by Mike White, who co-stars in the film. Mike White, uh, people may know uh, probably from uh, School of Rock, the Richard Linklater film, which he also wrote before. So he co-wrote, uh, co-created, and starred in the HBO show Enlightened, which is great. Has a similar tone to, to Chuck and Buck, which is that uh, Chuck and Buck story, which is about a guy called Buck who um, had a childhood friend called uh, Chuck, who he has a um, initially just seems to be kind of obsessed with, and then as you go along, you kind of get the sense that there's some some deep kind of uh, homoerotic uh, lust towards him. But they were they were kind of childhood friends, and they drifted apart, and he kind of decides that he wants to re-enter his life. And uh, he does this in part by uh, writing a play about their childhood and deciding he's going to stage it. But for the most part, the film is about him trying to kind of inveigle his way back into into Chuck's life. And uh, the the intimacy that you get from, you know, sort of DV, prosumer cameras, uh, and the, the sense of it almost being like a home video adds a, a kind of an uncomfortable uh, intimacy to a lot of their scenes, especially because the film is clearly being shot in like actual rooms in people's houses. So mm. there isn't really room for the camera to get away. There's lots of close-ups. There's lots of kind of really awkward interactions be- between them and people getting really close to each other. And, you know, a lot of the, uh, uh, the uncomfortable nature of the story and of the, the film itself really comes through just in how the story is presented. Um, in sen- in a sense, it was kind of like a uh, one of those early forerunners for the dreaded uh, dreaded word that we're going to mention, the mumblecore mm. movement. Yeah. Uh, that kind of uh, very uh, intimate, personal film shot in real locations with, you know, basically low budget films, but you know what I mean, uh, kind of talky, kind of twenty uh, something, early thirty something people, just you know, uh, having issues. That is kind of an early forerunner for that, isn't it? Yeah, but I think what sets it apart is that uh, it's not just kind of uh, people having romantic issues or job issues. It's like that this guy is clearly disturbed <laughs> mm. and there's clearly some very, very uh, weird psychosexual stuff that has gone on between these two guys in the past. And uh, much of the film is the question of how much is of how much of what Buck says happened actually happened and 
how much of it is just stuff that Chuck has uh, has repressed, and it, it really does kind of get into uh, it gets into some disturbing areas. But on the other hand, um, and this is kind of something that uh, Mike White did a lot on on Enlightened, is it's a film about people want someone wanting to have a human connection with someone <coughs> with someone, and not really knowing how to do that. And going about that in a way that's kind of self-destructive and kind of harmful to the people around them, but that which comes from just a, a place of someone who uh, doesn't really have anyone. You know, at the start of the film, Buck's uh, mum, I believe, dies. Yes, and le- does, yeah. leaves him basically alone, and he just and that that is kind of the impetus for him to try and want to get in contact with Chuck again. And uh, so it comes from this place of a guy who just wants to connect. Um, but he is just completely unprepared for how people do that. Um, and I think that kind of emo- em- emotional openness is, is part of what makes it such a, an uncomfortable film, but also, uh, you know, quite a, a oddly touching film in a way as well. Um, it's notable as well is that, like, uh, Chuck in this film is uh, played by the film director, uh, Chris White. Is it Chris or Paul? Uh, I believe it's Chris. Is Chris White, who some of you may know as the director of American Pie and Twilight 2. Um, but uh, he's in it, and one of the key points in the uh, film, like Ed said, is um, that uh, Chuck writes a, no, sorry, Buck writes a play about their childhood experiences and casts an actor that looks a lot like uh, Chuck to play the role. And in the film, that role is played by. Uh, Chris White's brother, Paul White, uh, who also co-directed American Pie. Um, And it's kind of adds another layer of intimacy and kind of reality to it to have two people who kind of aren't actors, Uh, although they they have acted several times in things, uh, but who aren't uh, predominantly actors uh, to play those roles. Yeah, and and the play itself is, if anyone's ever seen the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode, The uh, Nightman Cometh. It's kind mm-hmm, yeah. of a bit like that. <laughs> yeah, and a little bit like um, the dance cycle in The Big Lebowski that his landlord does. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, very much like that. Um, but yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a really great film. And I kind of never really thought about it in those terms of, of it being kind of like a, a precursor to Mumblecore. Um, but yeah, I mean, imagine a kind of a slightly more narrative-driven uh uh, kind of disturbing version of that and then you can kind of see how one led to the other yeah and certainly i think you can see that and and the puffy chair are obviously the two big ones in the development of that movement and of, of mumblecore people thinking you know you can just pick buy a camera and uh just start making films but uh in in both those cases uh you can see it's kind of necessity rather than necessarily an aesthetic choice it's the fact that Mike White wrote a uh, grossly uncommercial script, um, and that they couldn't really make it in any other way. So they, but the uh, the choices they had to make in terms of the budget obviously helps the story, and and yeah. and uh, creates a, a particular atmosphere that really works. Yeah, absolutely. Chuck and Buck. Um, if you can find it, give it a watch. It's grand. Um, our next film is uh, we had uh, my dinner with Andre in an earlier episode. Uh, and we're going to come uh, to another film by uh, the great Louis Malle. Uh, we're talking about Atlantic City. 
You're playing with Dave's money. I'm owed it. Adam, please, if you're not going to play, you'll have to leave the table. Sit down and be quiet. Oh, yeah, you're buying me roses? I'm getting fired from my job. I'm supposed to sit here like some Vegas bimbo? Look, mister, I've got hoods beating the shit out of me. If I'm going to get beat up for money and drugs, then I'm going to have that money and drugs on me. Atlantic City, very much a uh, film uh, about kind of getting old and decay um, and kind of uh, longing for a, a kind of a golden era that's long past. Yes, uh, and starring Burt Lancaster, who also starred in uh, The Secret of uh, My Success, which we also mm-hmm. included in this top 100. And, we did. Uh, which uh, I think the, those two films make interesting bookends because although his character in uh, Secret of My Success was like a, a gossip columnist and not kind of a, an old crook, which is basically what Burt Lancaster is in um, Atlantic City, they're both, you know, you get the sense that when he was younger, the character he plays in Atlantic City was someone who, you know, maybe wasn't at the top of the chain, but certainly someone who had kind of power and respect and who has kind of fallen just into complete disrepair, much as the city around him has just kind of completely fallen apart because Atlantic City in that, at that point in its history, it was long past the kind of stage where it was the kind of Riviera of the Northeast that you see in, boardwalk empire and before it was uh, revived as kind of a family family friendly place it's, mm-hmm. it was a, just a city that was completely in the doldrums and was actually kind of uh, depressing and you uh, the the physical decay of the city kind of is a uh, it forms the back backdrop for this this guy who similarly is just completely fallen apart and doesn't really have anything going for him yeah he's a kind of uh uh kind of self-styled uh, gangster. He kind of makes mm-hmm. claims like that he was Mayor Lansky's uh, cellmate and, and kind of things like that. He was kind of uh, running numbers for big-time players, but we see him kind of, uh, you know, running a numbers racket around kind of, you know, pretty poor neighbourhoods. And, you know, it's really kind of the, the uh, opposite to the kind of those films that kind of glamorise the gangster lifestyle. He's like basically a dog walker for this old woman. He has to, like shag every now and then just to keep a, keep the money coming in. He steals money from her. Um, and he's kind of uh, um, not obsessed, that's the wrong word, because it kind of, uh, kind of gives the wrong impression of the relationship. But he um, kind of begins to... Uh, hang on, there's no way of making this relationship sound <laughs> good. Basically, the film starts with him watching uh, Susan Sarandon uh, bathing herself with lemons through her window. Yes, that's great. <laughs> I've yeah. gotten the lemons. Oh, uh, you know, I I now can't taste a lemon without thinking of uh, Susan Sarandon's boobs. Um, but you know, I think I had that problem before I saw this film. Um, but yeah, it's it's like I say, it's a film about decay and a film that embodies that idea of Atlantic City being, you know, this once great jewel, uh, you know, kind of a grubby jewel, I guess, um, that has kind of just been stripped away. Something like the King of Marvin Gardens also kind of uh, plays into that a bit. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of the film itself, um, it's, uh, you know, just a really, uh, kind of horrible film in which none of the characters really have much of a chance of getting anywhere. Um, and much like Atlantic City, they just believe in the dream of it. Um, but yeah, everyone is ultimately dragged down, um, by their own limitations. Yeah. You get, get the sense it's a place that people used to go to because they could make something of themselves. And now it's a place that people desperately want to escape from. Yeah, or they go to because they're desperate to get away from somewhere mm. else. 
and the, the plot's uh, driven on with uh, kind of a peculiar relationship with Susan Sarandon, who is trying to train as a croupier um, um, in in kind of one of the, the kind of better hotels in Romantic City. Um, and uh, her ex-boyfriend, who is now going out with his sister, her sister, uh, turn up having robbed a load of money from some gangsters. Um, and then when Bert Lancaster's character... Uh, kind of falls into it. He tries to kind of, uh, you know, relive old glories, but then you start to realise that those old glories are, are anything but. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely. A, also, it, it kind of plays into the idea of this guy who maybe was a player at some point, or maybe just believes he was, and is, is maybe created a a narrative for himself in which he was an important person. Uh, kind of is thrown into a situation where he. Uh, gets a chance to play that sort of figure again in, you know, in his twilight years. Um, mm. And people, I think people seem to think that um, uh, something like Field of Dreams, which is a film I, I very much enjoy, is, is kind of like the great Burt Lancaster swan song. Whereas this really is, isn't it? Because it kind of, it's one of those films that kind of uh, sums up their career and, and, and kind of actually sees them go out acting rather than in a sentimental role. Yeah, it is a film that, doesn't shy away from the sadness of you know there's that kind of i don't i don't know if it's an intentional thing but there's in a story like that there's always the kind of intertextual idea of an older actor playing someone who's kind of been forgotten by the world which mm. uh you know Burt Lancaster obviously was someone who had his his peak in the 50s and and, and the 60s when his Oscar for Elmer Gantry and was a big player in terms of producing a lot of projects that he wanted to see get made and had it had a lot of power and then as he got older he kind of just kind of got pushed to the sidelines and this definitely feels like similar to something like it's obviously a very different film but something like the wrestler and the the obvious uh, poignancy of of mickey walk coming back in and playing a kind of broken down guy that people have forgotten uh, this definitely feels like burt lancaster taking on a role that perfectly fits where he was in his life and his career at that point mm. I think I've just thought of a, a perfect summation of it. It's a sad gangster film, mm. if you can imagine that. Um, yeah, it's, it's it, kind of an, an elderly sad gangster film. Yeah, it's a, it's a good time at the movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, Louis Marl is, I think he's someone that um, uh, pretty much every film he made uh, was kind of uh, held in high esteem. But I think City, given that it was kind of nominated for Best Picture, just kind of slips out of the out of the kind of consciousness. Really, it's not really uh, one of those films that's kind of talked about that often. Yeah, I think part of the problem is because he had kind of dual careers going at the same time. He would make films in France in his, his native tongue, and then he would come to America and he'd make films in in Hollywood, or he would make something like um, like uh, uh, My Dinner with Andre, which obviously is kind of a, a smaller, more independent film, but something that was kind of stood out from the language of what people were doing from the landscape of what people were doing at that time and i think his uh his his french films certainly from that period uh something like uh au revoir les enfants you know gets a lot more attention um because they were films that often were nominated for like best foreign language at the oscars and things like that and they overshadowed a lot of the uh the really good work he was doing uh in america yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, he's kind of like, I think you probably call him an essential director now. I think he's one of those people that's been kind of celebrated in box sets and things like that. And I think films like Atlantic City, which 
Um, I mean, I've got the 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 DVD of it. It's, it's the worst DVD <laughs> I've got. Like it's so poorly um, lined up and everything. Like the boom pops in at the top, and the DVD menu's got this kind of weird banjo music over the top. Right. Uh, it's just just really badly put together, and it's kind of you know, it's a film that kind of deserves much better than that. Yeah, hopefully that. I, I think um, I think it had a, a Blu-ray release over here a while ago. Um, so hopefully it's been cleaned up. I haven't watched that version, but hopefully someone has given it uh, the treatment it deserves because it is a really, really great film from a, dr- a director who did so much work. You know, if you look at his his filmography, he did so much stuff, so many documentaries and features and everything. Um, it all really should be cherished. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, next one we're going to talk about um, is a film we've mentioned before um, and uh, we very much uh, kind of uh, fond of this film. Uh, we're talking about David Gordon Green's George Washington. You know, you act like such a little kid. Like, you're a little eight-year-old running around being goofy. You know, I just can't stand it anymore. What do you want me to say? Don't say nothing. Can I say I'm sorry? It's too late. Just don't say nothing. Can I kiss you one last time? Tell me that you love me. Do you love me? Um, if Atlantic City was a film about kind of uh, growing old and kind of decaying and, and fading away, um, George Washington is a film about kind of the, the youthful exuberance and innocence lost. Yes, definitely. It's a it's one of the best films about adolescence, I feel, and um, that point at which you go from childhood to um, adulthood or proto-adulthood um, centered around the kind of a tragic event that you know not all children go through but I definitely feel like uh, it's it's a great examination of that sort of thing in a similar way to uh, something like you know Night of the Hunter kind of does a similar sort of thing where it, it takes the loss of innocence and puts it in a kind of a a, a, a tragic context uh, that it does it as well, but in a much more kind of uh, abstract and ethereal sense. Um, I still can't quite believe that this was Joel, uh, David Gordon Green's kind of feature debut mm. and that he it's so assured as a film and it's so uh, kind of confident and it's so like it looks like the film is made by, uh, without wanting to kind of uh, resort to kind of hyperbole, it looks like a film is made by a master filmmaker, Yeah, at least technically. You can definitely see why... Pretty much from the start, he was pegged as like the next Terence Malick, um, because visually and also in sort of milieu, there's a there's a great similarity between that and uh, and something like Badlands, the idea of making a film in the parts of America that don't usually get photographed, um, sort of the rural um, South and kind of forgotten areas of America. Um, but yeah, just in terms of his his confidence in telling a story that is. Uh, often uh, uses lots of uh, kind of overlapping dialogue or dialogue from one scene playing out over another. There's lots of uh, techniques that he uses, which could have been uh, kind of you know, first year film student sort of stuff, like someone trying to show off with all of their non-linear storytelling. But he employs it so expertly that it never feels like someone just showing off. It feels like it's intrinsic to the story he's telling. Yeah, if you want to see 
what it looks like for a student filmmaker showing off in a first film whose ideas exceed any kind of grasp they've got of what it means. Then watch the film Bellflower from a few years ago. I don't know if you've seen that, have you heard? No, I've heard uh, very, very mixed things. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what the film is like. Uh, it's a lot of kind of stuff that they're like, oh man, this is awesome, but mm, no, empty is something that's empty. Um, we're talking about kind of people's careers. Um, David Gordon Green went from someone who was being talked up as the next Terence Malick to making Your Highness, mm. which is, I mean, he kind of didn't go straight there. I mean, kind of, he, he'd done some Eastbound and Down and then he kind of got into that kind of, uh, that comedy troupe that I refuse to call the frat pack. Um, and he did uh, Pineapple Express was the first one he did, wasn't it? The first film he did. And then now, yeah, he kind of just made like a few kind of stoner comedies, which is a very peculiar uh, choice. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of see how he went there because he he and uh, Danny McBride went to film school together. Right. Uh, which is why Danny McBride is in... I don't think he's in this, but he's definitely in All the Real Girls. He is, yeah. yeah. Um, and so you can... One, Danny McBride obviously fell in with those guys. Uh, you can see why he would want to kind of approach his, uh, his friend and ask if they wanted to work together. But even knowing that, you know, those are kind of the back channels and the connections, it's still very, very weird to think that the guy who did this directed Pineapple Express, which is a really fun and entertaining film. But it's it's a bit far away from this kind of like story of, you know, young kids just kind of playing around near railway tracks and stuff. Um, he uh, kind of returned to that kind of thing, didn't he? Kind of late last year with a film called Prince Avalanche, mm. which um, I wasn't that kind of enamoured with, I have to say. Yeah, he also kind of did it with a film this year called Joe with uh, a Nicolas, Cage, Nicolas Cage, which was actually pretty good. Um wasn't great, but uh, it, it had that same sort of, you know, uh, sort of genre, genre story set in the uh, kind of uh, flyover states, to use a horrible term, um, and, uh, you know, using uh, kind of very dusty autumnal uh, hues and everything. So that that was that one was pretty good. He's obviously not... I don't think it's on anything he's done since returning to that area is on a par with obviously the first sort of two or three films he made. But um, yeah, I was quite glad to see him return, push back in that direction. Yeah, he's an intriguing talent, is uh, David Gordon Green. Uh, but every time I see what he's doing next, I'm always kind of like, oh, yeah, I don't really understand. I mean, I love Eastbound and Down. I mean, mm. that's great. Oh, but he did, uh, he did the, the sequel. Uh, the sequel. He did the pilot to um, Red Oaks. He directed that, which is pretty cool. Um but yeah, he's uh, he's someone who kind of I kind of long for. I always wonder what he's what he, what kind of films he'd be making now if he hadn't had that kind of detour. I don't want to kind of like, like kind of you know be down on it because obviously he's making good films and stuff and like you know they're all great. Uh, who am I to say they're not? But like you know, I kind of I just wonder what kind of films he would have been doing. Yeah, he had he a very weird detour, which uh, you kind of get the feeling if it had only been one film, it probably would have been all right. But because that one film made a lot of money and they said, hey, why didn't you make this uh, stoner medieval comedy <laughs> or this yeah, uh, I mean, movie with Jonah Hill? Uh, it kind of uh, got massively derailed. Yeah, I mean, Your Highness is not a good film. No. Um, it's, 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 it's a very bad film and, and probably 
on probably every level. Especially considering, you know, you've got a great, great director behind it and decent, uh, you know, very funny people in front of the camera. It should be at least watchable. Uh, and it mm. doesn't even rise to that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we shouldn't really be talking about Your Highness. <laughs> um, but yes, George Washington, a film that should be celebrated. Um, and that's why we kind of chose it here. Um, our penultimate film uh, we're going to talk about on this penultimate episode um, is uh, a film that I think out of all the films that I've revisited for this uh, Top 100 is the one that I've enjoyed the most seeing it again, having not seen it for a long time. Uh, we're talking about John Borman's seminal gangster film, Point Blank. very carefully not say point break there which is seminal in its own way mm. uh, but not quite as seminal as this um yeah point blank kind of uh, we talk a lot about the 70s and i find that we talk a lot about the fact that we talk a lot about the 70s as well uh, about you know that being a golden era of filmmaking um and a lot of films are talked about as being kind of precursors to that of bonnie and clyde easy rider that kind of caper but point blank is right there at the forefront it is a is a crazy film if you watch it it's a you know on paper it's a very straight story and it's a it's a um the source material has been adapted a couple of times you know about a gangster who's double crossed and he wants his money back and he goes all the way to the top of a crime syndicate to get it but the way that borman tells it and the way that the film is constructed is kind of nuts yeah it's very much when people talk about the films of the 70s they talk they're often talking about the uh, European influence and of of uh, you know art house European directors inspiring American directors and in the case of Point Blank you have an actual European director coming over to America and being allowed to be sort of let loose on sort of very straightforward material and he uh, employs just kind of amazing uh, associative editing techniques to kind of cut around the plot you know cutting out expositionary dialogue or having it layer over other stuff while uh lee marvin's kind of stomping around angrily um and uh, creating something that is you know it has a clear narrative and you can follow what's happening but the way it's presented is so kind of jagged and broken in a way like it's almost as if he took the film and then smashed it into pieces and then reassembled it in a kind of funhouse mirror version of a thriller uh, yeah. it's just uh, it's it's really uh kind of startling how again in in kind of like we were saying about carnival of souls it's both familiar in that you can tell the kind of film it is but it's presented in such an alien way yeah absolutely and, and across the board um everything about it none of it is kind of conformist in any way like the sound design is really amazing and one of my favorite scenes is um, there's we get kind of a well I kind of don't want to call it a scene because it's really like lots of scenes going in, into each other but yeah. like Lee Marvin walking down a corridor and he's not particularly going anywhere but his footsteps kind of establish his rhythm and then we kind of cross cut that he's going to his um, ex-wife's house because she's kind of done him in and like you kind of you get this idea that his footsteps are like the ticking of a time bomb mm. and then he just explodes the, through the door and beats her up and it's just like 
that's amazing. And that's a, that was, you know, that was 1967. Yeah, I think I've seen that described as like the 118, whatever number it is, the like 118 angriest steps in cinema history. <laughs> because they, oh, yeah. they are, they, it's, it's kind of strange to think of like footsteps being filled with rage. But they are, they, they're so loud in the soundtrack that they basically form the score for that scene. And they're so, the, the rhythm of them is so hypnotic that it, it really uh, sets the tone for the whole film, really. The idea, mm. the way that he's moving and he's constantly in motion and heading towards his goal. And he is uh, relentless, is, is Lee Marvin, um, in his pursuit of, uh, of revenge, not even really of getting his money back, just kind of seeking justice, which is the, uh, the great thing about it. That it's really yeah. it's really just a pure revenge film with nothing else kind of uh, weighing it down. Anyone else who wants to uh, continue down this film studies one hundred and one uh, uh, kind of alleyway um, is that um, in like, like a lot of the scenes as the film progresses, um, each scene, some of the scenes have their own really weird distinctive color palette, like um all pretty much everything will match or they'll be all be in a range of colors that are kind of very uh complementary and it kind of almost creates each scene has its own weird little reality um and it's just i, I just i couldn't i, I mean I, it's been a long time since i saw it i mean it obviously made a uh, an impression on me when i did um but watching it again this time just kind of just how it like kind of um distinct it is and how how just bold it is in every every way and like i said it just kind of keep having to have my memory jogged that it was made you know nearly 60 years ago it's a it's a really great example of how set design can be used to kind of heighten the reality of a film because it's not there's no aspect of any scene in that film that is arbitrary it's all clearly constructed in such a way to suit a particular vision and um it, it really does kind of stand out just how well considered the whole film is in kind of creating this uh, uh, having each scene feel like its own beautifully constructed short film within the broader narrative yeah yeah absolutely um but yeah um yeah again we talk about films that have been remade off this list um this film has been remade in a very peculiar way like mel gibson made it is a film called payback in the late 90s um, a film which has a kind of very fascinating backstory to it because uh, it's a film that's not very good, uh, as far as I can remember, but a film which everyone who has seen the original version that was butchered by the studio says is actually quite good. Uh, can you fill us in on that, Ed? Uh, yeah, it was uh, directed by Brian Helgeland, who I believe won an Oscar for writing L.A. Confidential. He did, and, he did, yeah. Uh, this was his, his directorial debut, and he uh, you know, he was coming off of that Oscar win, Um but I also believe, am I correct in thinking he was the the first person to win an Oscar and a Razzie for writing in the same year? Because he also wrote The Postman. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Uh, that sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, so he, he was coming off of an Oscar win, but he also was coming off a Razzie win, which may be why uh, the studio felt they could take payback away from him and, and cut it up and butcher it. Um, but yeah, the, the film came out, it did fairly well, but he uh, pretty much disowned it and was really, really angry about it. And then... About six years later, in 2003, they put out the DVD Payback, uh, The Ultimate Cut or something, which was basically the, the reconstructed version of what he wanted. And uh, yeah, it was it was much more... 
it just it just added a lot of more scenes that added context to what was happening and it's obviously not as good as 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 point blank because you know how could it be but it's a lot more it feels like more of a complete work rather than something that they where they just cut out a load of stuff to make it seem more commercial mm, absolutely but yeah um there you go a little bit of extra uh uh color to the uh uh to the proceedings um, there, was also, yeah, definitely. there was also Go a on. version from last year called Parker, starring Jason Statham, which was based on the same novel, uh, in which he plays the Lee Marvin character and Michael Chiklis plays the guy that portrays him. Uh, wow. Which isn't particularly good, but um, that is, uh, yeah, that, that, that's another example of how even people working from the same material can create wildly different films. Yeah, I mean... Jason Statham isn't really Lee Marvin, is he? No, he's Lee Christmas in the Expendables <laughs> films. That's as close Which is as not he the gets. same thing. No, but it's, yeah. it's, it's halfway there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, point blank, uh, check it out. Right, we're on to our last film now. Um, a film that, um, if you listen, regular listeners to the show, um, will know that we are uh, huge fans of, and it felt only right to uh, include it on our list. Uh, we're talking about Ryan Johnson's Brick. says he wants more money than I think the information is worth. That's so dope. So walk. What's the info I have to do with you anyways? Plenty. Plenty, he says. Uh-huh. He wants cash on the nail. This pot's called reform with more hop in his head than blood. I pay for dirt you can't believe. No, you'll believe this. Maybe you will. Maybe you will. Because it's someone close to you, real close. Maybe it's hot, but it's dope. You can't trust it. Real close. Um, a film that was made for deceptively little money, um, but is, uh, you know, big on ideas, um, and somehow manages to be uh, a victory of substance over style. Mm, although the, the style is a big part of what's great about it. Um, for people who don't know, Brick is a, a noir but it's uh, a noir set in a high school. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, um, kind of at the start of his uh, renaissance, where he went from being uh, a guy famous for being a child a sitcom star to being kind of a serious actor that people took seriously. Um, in, uh, this was directly on the, uh, on the heels of Mysterious Skin, which he'd made the year before. Uh, plays a guy whose uh, ex-girlfriend uh, winds up dead and he, who's kind of a, a kind of a misfit at school, but who has connections of all the various uh, cliques, uh, starts to kind of talk to people and trying to figure out how exactly his girlfriend got killed and why she was killed. But uh, rather than just taking that and just presenting it in a straightforward way of going, okay, noir set in a high school, you know, cliques as various gangs and everything. Uh, Ryan Johnson goes the extra mile and creates his own language to be used in the film. Um, so he he kind of already starts with a complicated premise and then adds further complications on it. And uh, it should be a mess, but uh, it's it's completely not. Yeah, I think the reason I said substance over style is that we talk, uh, another film we talk about, I, I feel like the Brick's kind of uh, evil sister is Sin City. Mm. We talk about Robert Rodriguez enjoying the trappings of noir and being very much uh seems to be obsessed with the surface of noir not really understanding what the the uh the, the stylistic ticks 
mean and, and, and you know you know how to use them. Um, whereas Brick is a film that should collapse under its own weight in about five minutes, mm. but somehow doesn't. And not only is that the achievement that you know it it, it works, it actually works really fucking well. Yeah, I think that the Sin City comparisons a good one because uh, not only did they come out the same year, but uh, the thing that Ryan Johnson really understands is he's someone who uh, read an awful lot of Dashiell Hammett, and he's someone who is who knows that kind of storytelling and who has picked it apart and knows what the driving heart of that story is, which is about loners, outsiders, crooks who perhaps have, or, or detectives who have who are maybe jaded but they have some sense of right and wrong and they will do anything in their power to kind of write that and or to to get to the bottom of it uh, no matter how much it endangers their lives or what it does to the people around them and he re- he transposes that to uh, a high school uh, brilliantly because he kind of realizes that the you know the sort of the red harvest the dueling gangs kind of storytelling fits perfectly within uh, the high school milieu where you have different uh, sort of rival gangs and different uh, small organisations working against each other. And he he manages to kind of combine those two worlds in a way that's really uh, compelling. Um, I mentioned at the top there that it was, um, you know, made for deceptive little money. I say that because it cost uh, about half a million dollars, um, but doesn't feel like it at all. That's absolutely crazy because it does look amazing. Yeah, and I listened to the commentary on the DVD, and you uh, were saying that you know it's not backed by anyone. They basically wrote the script. People liked it, and they just went around with the hat and just said, "Who wants to stick money into it?" And it's just it's completely privately you know put together, and um, that makes it even more of an achievement. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it is a real kind of uh, triumph of someone having a very clear vision and not letting. Uh, anything get in the way of it you know he's someone who I believe worked on that script for a really really long time and uh, was I think he'd probably been out of film school for quite a few years before it actually got made and he always had he like had other projects that people wanted him to work on but he wanted to make brick he wanted to 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 that to be the film that he wanted to make and not giving into that created something that feels kind of confident because he has spent all those years working it over in his mind so that when it came time to make it, he knew exactly what he wanted to do. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, we talk about, I mean, it's a, it's a great debut. Um, first of all, um, but like it kind of really did kind of set the table for him, didn't it? As a, as a director, because, um, you know, here we look at, you know, in what two years time, he's going to be directing star Wars episode eight. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, it's yeah, it's crazy to think, but like you know, going from a film is is as brick. I mean, he he then went on to do Brothers Bloom, which um, I think is ripe for reappraisal. But I think uh, I, I don't think I would shift my opinion on the fact that it is uh, slightly beyond his grasp uh, at that point in his career. It does get away from him that film. Um, but then yeah, he, he you know he did Looper, which you know we were both very fond of. Um, and then yeah, all of a sudden it's a bit, it's a big step up. Yeah, Br- Brothers Bloom, which I rewatched earlier this year, I think is a film that, uh, like Brick has a l- and Looper has a lot of ideas, but it kind of overloads on them a little bit. In that, a lot of its ideas are 
kind of quirks for his characters to have as opposed to ideas to kind of fill out the world because the world of brick he has this this kind of deceptively simple premise of you know noir set in high school and then he adds things in there like you know there's kind of a kingpin sort of character but because he's a teenager he still lives in his mother's house and she brings some like milk and cookies when he and uh just gordon levitt are having a high tension powwow and things like mm-hmm. that which is kind of an obvious joke but the, the, the they play it really really well um in the case of the Brothers Bloom, he I think he overloads uh, Rachel Vice with a few too many quirks, and it becomes a little bit uh, manic, pitsy, dream girlish uh, for its own good. But it's a film that has so many from it, like like Brick has such a great, wonderfully complex plot that it's really, really uh, it's just really, really enjoyable to see how all the gears kind of uh, run together. Um, yeah and uh, and it has a great uh, central relationship between um the two brothers played by mark ruffalo and adrian brody yes well anyway uh yeah sidetracked by the brothers bloom which is a film that is constantly sidetracked every five minutes um so yeah uh there's that but no brick is uh is fantastic and uh um it'd be interesting to kind of see what uh, mr johnson does with star wars episode eight um i suppose it all hangs on whether uh, Star Wars Episode 7 is a success so we should see if uh, that makes any money in the box office uh, as to whether they're going to give him the keys to the sequel because you know how these things go, nothing's a sure bet mm. uh, but you know maybe maybe Star Wars might be so that's part 9 Ed, we are just one part away um, I survived through this episode, I don't know if I mentioned it I am ill um, um, and yeah um, it's, it's getting pretty close now to the end yeah, one more and then we can start spending six months thinking about what our next big project will be yeah or five minutes coming up with the idea or and then six months trying to figure out what films to talk about which is you know pretty much what we did here yeah we're we're very good at big ideas but the practicalities are a a mystery to us yeah yeah like the brothers bloom um (laughs) there you go full circle uh anyway uh we'll be back with something else next week not sure what that'll be um but i'm sure it'll be great uh until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me Thank you.